Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, Chris McCord was talking about some upcoming live view speedups in the client DOM patching. Not even just like little tweaks. This is like five times faster. And Jose clarified some of this work and how it actually does this. What he said is another huge win from Heeks templates. Since we know that the HTML structure and we know when it has changed or not, we can skip huge parts of DOM parsing and traversal when whole subtrees stay the same. On the server side, because it's functions, we can know if it's changed or not. Because of that, we can cut out a whole bunch of extra work. So Chris McCord elaborated on the details as well, saying, how does this work? TLDR, it is to truncate the HTML nodes if we know that they are single root function components and did not change, resulting in more than 99% less HTML for the browser engine to parse for big pages. We don't even have to send all the HTML down, right? Just browser parsing HTML prior to diffing is the most expensive part for us. He continued, so we cheat by giving a substantially smaller DOM with matching root nodes in the tree that we then skip during diffing. So it's just taking a lot of that work that's happening in the browser, like especially with large pages, right? That's where you're really going to feel it. That's a win because of Heeks templates. And uh, Jose was pointing out like, I don't think uh, React does this. You know, some of the other front end frameworks that are doing all this different stuff. Yeah, you got to be careful <laughs> about saying that kind of stuff, right? Someone's going to get upset. <laughs> but it is really cool, right? That Heeks templates enable that because of the function components. That's pretty incredible. 5X is nothing to, to sniff at. You know, that's that's pretty great. All right, moving on. We got Wojtek Mach, good friend Mach, teased a cool new REC feature that he's building. So we got a link to his tease. But the short of it is that you can call rec.get to download a file. That's nothing new. But now you can also provide a checksum for the download and it will perform the checksum for you. That's the neat part. Voitech then went on to explain that it's actually going to compute the checksum asynchronously while the download is being chunked down the wire. So that's even more slick. So when concurrency is easy and built-in, cool features like this, it's just cool. It's just nice. It's approachable. A rec is great. He expects that'll be released in a couple of weeks. All right. Also about rec, he released 0.3.12 and 0.4.4. It says everyone should upgrade. There was a bugger in there, so upgrade. <laughs> the, the latest one is being 0.4, which changed the way that headers are parsed. So for those that have opted into that already, go update to 0.4.4. And then those that haven't made the leap yet to headers being a map, then that's 0.3.12. Rec optionally also supports broadly easy STD compressions and nimble CSV dependencies. So he was checking for them at runtime, which was kind of a bad idea because it goes through a, a code server and that could be a bottleneck and yada, yada, yada. So that is that is the reason for the go upgrade message. And it's been released in the new version. Next up, there's a new HTTP caching library introduced by Tangui Lepence. And I'm so sorry if I butchered your name. No idea how to actually say it right. Well, this is a stateless Erlang library Standard compliant with RC9111. We'll drop a link to a blog post he made accompanying this release. Well, what's interesting is there's this well-known table in Sasha Yurik's book called uh, Elixir in Action that shows how the beam can implement a lot of different parts of a normal stack you might build. So, for example, in an HTTPS server, 
You might use Nginx or for system-wide state, you might use Redis or for background jobs or crash recovery. And it just goes on and on and all these different things. And it shows in this other column how you could just use Erlang and get the same stuff. And so this project fits another piece into that table for HTTP caching and can help you remove solutions like Nginx or Varnish. So this library, HTTP cache, is pretty low level and is intended to be used by other higher level libraries. So he also announced two Elixir library. There's plug HTTP cache and there's Tesla HTTP cache. So plug is, as you would expect, it's a plug that you can put into your pipelines and configure some things to get some caching. The other one is a Tesla middleware to get you some caching when you're doing HTTP requests. So this all sounds pretty cool. If anybody tries this out, we'd love to hear how it goes for you. And next up, Livebook Launch Week has started. So this is the Livebook Project's second launch week. They did this last year. And just following on from what they did last year, what this would mean for now is that throughout the week, they're going to be announcing cool new features and highlighting something that's neat and new in Livebook. As of this recording, one day of the launch week has happened. That was Monday. So we'll get back to you on the rest of what happened during the launch week next time. And this launch week is timed with the version 0.11 release of Livebook. So what was in day one of the release? There's a blog post on the Livebook website under the news section. We got a link to it in the show notes. I love that they're using videos to really show it off. It's an easy way to digest it, right? But one of the things is remote execution smart cells. So it's a new smart cell that makes it much easier to execute a function on a remote machine and store the returned value as a variable. So as an example, it includes a video showing how to use the new feature to connect a Livebook notebook to a running Phoenix app to get some data from it, like querying some contexts and fetching data and then assigning that to something locally. There's a video from Hugo Barauna where he shows how to display a chart of those metrics. Like, so you're fetching data out of the Phoenix app and then you're displaying metrics in the live book. And that's an interactive live book, right? That's something you can then poke and prod and say, well, what's, what is this data in here? What's, what, what can I see about my running app over there as I poke around and get real time business insights? So that is a really fun use case for live book is attaching to live servers or like even as just a staging server but something that's like in a production mode so i'm looking forward to the rest of launch week and we'll be sharing that with you next time all right next up still talking about livebook though there's a new thing called livebook copilot so a sir thomas miller noticed that everyone seems to be building ai copilots for ides of course we live in the age of twitter and marketing and devrel and so thomas decided to add it to livebook which is pretty neat so he created a Kino Copilot Livebook Smart Cell feature. So you'll have to add that to your to your Livebook. But what that can do is it just gives you an, the ability to ask Copilot to, <laughs> to write code for you. And then you just cover your eyes and execute like you usually do with <laughs> when you're having AI write code for you. Can we teach it to submit PRs too? And <laughs> Yeah, but I, I, more seriously, though, like you, you, it, it is helpful for helping spot bugs, refactoring code. You can generate SQL for some data analysis. It's, it's a good starting point. I'm hesitant to just, yes, cover my eyes and hit run, but you don't have to use it for code. You could use it for writing documentation. You could write it to have it generate dashboards or something. 
it is using OpenAI key as a secret, so that's the smartness powering that. But pretty neat that it's now in Livebook because I noticed a lot of folks are spiking some code maybe in Livebook and outside of their typical editor that they might be using. This is true. Yeah, so very nice. Thanks, Thomas Miller, for sending that out. That's pretty cool. So Hugo Barauna shared how on Twitter, I mean on X, how he transcribed a 47-minute episode of our show using the Whisper Model Smart Cell. So this is pretty cool, and we'll drop a link to where he shows a GIF of that happening. And I I looked at the beginning, and it's not perfect because it transcribed my name as Kate. (laughs) So we got to work on that Whisper Model. Got to enunciate a little bit better. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Cade. (laughs) It's a hard name to pronunciate, kind of. So anyways, it's interesting. It took On CPU, it took him five minutes to transcode. And then on GPU, 39 seconds. This is pretty incredible. If you're just playing with stuff, that's a reasonable amount of time if you only have a CPU to be playing with these models. And so this is cool. It's coming a long ways. If we can get my name right, I think we'll have made it. (laughs) (laughs) Having tested different versions of the Whisper models, like there's like the, the light version, it's called small, I think, and medium. When you use the larger models, it does get your name right. So, oh, okay. Yes. Maybe we, we we should re-record the intro, and I'll say, "And I'm Cade Ward." <laughs> <laughs> and I just wanted to share next up that I've created a Langchain Elixir library, and I have a Langchain demo project that I released. And so the demo project shows how to create a conversation with ChatGPT. But it's more than just that. I can edit past cells in my conversation. I can delete things and then rerun it. And it shows how to do that with the LangChain library. Well, by the time this episode is released, the Elixir LangChain demo project will be updated to include an example of an agent. And this is where I think things get super interesting and fun. So an agent is when we wrap specific context around ChatGPT or some other LLM and give the agent the ability to store data in my application and fetch data back out later. And with that ability... So in two days, over the weekend, I created a virtual AI personal fitness trainer, and I have been having a blast with it. In talking with my personal assistant, Max, he created a customized workout plan for me, and I was able to log my workout information in it as I went, and it kept historical data, and it's storing that in a local SQLite database, and that's part of the agent aspect, right? So I can come back later and say, what was my last workout? And it has access to that data and pulls it up and say, well, what's my workout plan for this week? And it knows what that is. Because normally, you know, if you go to ChatGPT and start a new conversation, it has no idea what you were talking about before or any idea about how to behave other than like default. So this is available in the demo project. You can see how to build your own agent that does what you want. If you just provide your own OpenAI API key, then you can create your own personalized workout and it's recorded and it can grow with you over time. And I swear it is really fun. I've had a blast with that. All right, moving on. We got a SpawnFest reminder. So SpawnFest is a 48-hour online software development contest. Starts on October 28th, which is like very soon at the time of this recording. The registration closes five days prior to that start date, which is like (laughs) now-ish. You got a couple of days, I think. You can find out more info about SpawnFest at SpawnFest.org. Always excited about the cool stuff that comes out of that. Things you can't even, like, anticipate. <laughs> it's always surprised to me, too. And by the time you hear this, Code Beam will be starting this week. So it'll be in Berlin, October 19th through the 20th. 
Looking forward to seeing things that come from that conference. And that's it for the news. Elixir and Phoenix are incredible. They make it possible to quickly build highly resilient and reliable systems capable of operating at incredible scale. Fly.io is a great place to host Elixir apps. You can deploy your app to multiple regions around the world with a private network linking them all together so your app can cluster and globally do some incredible Phoenix magic. Give your users a more responsive UI while writing less code and moving the app closer to your users without needing an ops team. Check out fly.io for your next Elixir app. Today we're being joined by our special guest, Michael Lubis. Welcome back, Michael. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is awesome. Yeah, so we've had you with us before, and I'm glad you could come back. So I know you focus a lot on the security aspect of what's going on in the Elixir space. There's a lot of fun stuff we can talk about, things that have come out from the EEF recently about like the security working group and a guide that I know you were part of. So I'd love to hear more about that. And we're going to talk about that. But then there's also like some recent current news. There's always always current news, like with what's going on in this the security world and like major breaches and stuff like that. So I just want to pick your brain on one of those. But before we get into all that, I'd love to hear more about you. What can you tell us about yourself? Like, where do you live and what kind of work are you doing? Thanks. Yeah, it's great to be back. So my name is Michael Lubis. I'm the founder of Praxilio. I live in New York. Some people think I live in Denver because I am the organizer of the Denver Elixir meetup, one of the organizers there. (laughs) That meetup is fully remote. But worth mentioning on this episode, though, the New York City Elixir meetup is actually coming back November 20th. So this will be in the show notes. But if you'd like to come out in person and you live in the New York City area, keep an eye on the meetup page for that. Nice. In-person meetups, they do have a different vibe. People can have those comfortable little one-on-one or a little small group conversations afterward. It's a great environment. So I, I think those are awesome to join. All right, but you, but you also said that you work at Paraxial. So tell me a little bit about what Paraxial is doing. Yes, so Paraxial.io, it's a company that helps other companies use Elixir securely. So when any company is adopting a newer programming language, security support is often a requirement. And before Paraxial.io, there was really nothing on the market for Elixir. What I always thought was interesting too is I view Elixir as more secure than a lot of other programming languages, which is not to say that you can neglect security completely. This is kind of a fine point that sometimes gets lost where I like the analogy of imagine if somebody invented an asphalt that reduces the number of potholes in a road. You know, in the analogy, Elixir is the improved asphalt, that does not mean you can neglect road maintenance completely. (laughs) But it also leads to the situation where, you know, companies like they're adopting a language and they find a security vendor that supports it. You know, just because you found a security vendor that supports PHP, that doesn't really mean it's more secure than other languages. So I'm very happy to just be in the Elixir world and kind of telling people about it from a security perspective. With Praxial.io, the main software product just helps companies with common security tasks. The two parts of it are bot defense, that's for stopping attacks, and then application secure is more the code level, you know, stopping attacks, but in a different way, more at runtime, kind of like remote code execution. Um, I won't go into the full details now. Just that's the security product. There's also on the consulting side, training for Elixir developers in secure coding, as well as general consulting and pen testing. 
So the company is almost two years old now. Congrats. Oh, yeah. Thank you. It's been really great. Really a lot of credit just to the Elixir community. Everyone in it is so fantastic. I got to meet a lot of people in person at ElixirConf this year, and it was really incredible. You mentioning that Elixir, you know, is like a, a more consistent, more, more modern, you know, solution for the web. And I, I like to think of it as more consistent too. For for example, like in, in the Java world, there's lots of web frameworks. And so if you were to be a security vendor for that, you'd have to know about all of those those frameworks. Whereas in Elixir, we've typically rallied around a couple of major solutions, Phoenix being web. That probably means that you're very intimately aware of plug and how the plug works, but you don't have to you don't have to spread yourself thin with all of the other ways of doing things. And uh, same with Live View, same with Ecto, right? Sure, you can, anybody, like you said, can do their own thing, roll their own code, make their own potholes kind of thing. <laughs> but that probably helps a lot. Yeah, I just got to say, like, continuing on with that, I, I love the asphalt comparison, right? And it, it doesn't prevent the guy who says, hey, I, I see a penny was stuck here in this asphalt. I'm going to get a pick and start digging out the asphalt, right? <laughs> so you have that kind of situation where someone, they may have a reason to do it, but they're doing something that's causing a problem that is maybe making it less secure uh, in that particular area. And you're creating a pothole, a problem. What I'm looking forward to talking more about too, is all like some of the, the tools that exist that can help automate finding those and preventing those, doing some of that maintenance for us in a more automated way. So yeah, Let's get into this. One of those big potholes that people have discovered recently, <laughs> thanks to uh, Wired.com and probably other news agencies, is that hopefully the listeners here have heard of 23andMe. 23andMe is a DNA warehouse, essentially, right? The idea is that you get something in the mail, you spit in it, you mail it back, and then they run a series of tests. They make a genome of you, right? It's all about genes. And so you've, they've got all this data about well, humans, right? It's popular for ancestry as well to figure out like what part of the world are you from, you know, that, that kind of stuff. But also, I think the beginnings of it was to determine if you had certain genes that would make you more susceptible to certain diseases. So that's 23andMe. All right. So why are they in the news now? Well, because they had a data breach. <laughs> and, and I don't know about you. You talk about sensitive data. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know about you. I don't, I don't want my genome out there <laughs> just for anybody, especially uh, insurance companies. So, <laughs> oh boy. So, Michael, tell me your perspective on this data breach. What are some things that they they just got wrong? Yeah, I mean, I don't know all the details. That's the thing. So I don't, I don't really want to like start making these grand statements or anything. From the information that's been reported publicly, though, this just seems really horrible. Like the person who did this just seems like kind of a bad person. This is not good for users of 23andMe. I, I know there's sometimes this tendency of security people to go like, oh, well, like, you know, you should have seen this coming. But like most people don't work in cybersecurity. It's, it's unreasonable to say that, I think, in just the way things are changing. From what I've seen reported, they're saying that their servers were not breached. Rather, it was a credential stuffing attack. This is something we discussed back in on this podcast on episode 93, bots and service abuse. But for listeners to kind of like, what's the difference between the servers being breached and credential stuffing? Let's say you just have like an Apache web server, you know, running your web application, and then somebody uses what's called a, a zero day exploit to break into that server. Those cost a lot of money. You really see 
um, like well-funded, sometimes government-backed groups doing that sort of attack. I guess an analogy would be like you're defending an office park and like a, that's the equivalent of like a SWAT team breaking in. Like, yeah, a, an office security personnel is not going to be able to defend against. That's kind of an unreasonable request. The thing with credential stuffing is it's not a high sophistication attack. The analogy would really more be like a guy wandered in off the street and like took files out of a filing cabinet and just walked out and nobody stopped them. I guarantee 23andMe has like very smart AppSec people that were like aware that this could be a problem. Just to back up a little bit, when we say credential stuffing, you're probably picturing you know, you have a login page and then there's data breaches where everyone's usernames and passwords get leaked. Somebody writes a bot to do thousands of just like automated login attempts. From what's come out of this, it seems like, you know, 23andMe might have actually had like protection on their login page. But then there was this product feature where you could search for people that were related to you through some kind of genetic, on some genetic way. And that part like it seems like they scraped it or they had some kind of automated way to yank data out. And I and I like guarantee you that the security people like threat modeled this and were like, hey, this is a huge risk. Like we need something in place to not only block this, but also like detect if accounts are are doing this, like having monitoring in place. Just kind of topical because we talked about this in the last in the last episode where there's a number of solutions you can go with on this. Like recapture is a popular one, but the way it's used really often, it's sort of like a static check where you just put it in place and then it like is allow or deny. But like you won't get an alert saying, hey, like this account is like very obviously trying to access or do something very, very bad. Cloudflare is another like big vendor on the market. There's privacy concerns with using Cloudflare. They have Turnstile now, but there's not like an Elixir library for Turnstile because why would there be? You know, you don't really see good Elixir support from the vendors. And the other thing is monitoring too. Like, do you actually have a system in place to tell you, hey, th- like this user account is obviously doing something, something malicious. So that's something I focus on with Praxial. I own the product. I don't want to claim like, oh, like, you know, they should have done this or that because I don't have all the information. I just think it's, it's topical to talk about this because as developers, like the people listening to this podcast, I guarantee like every person who's listening to this could have coded this bot themselves. Like it's not some zero day nation state thing. Mm -hmm. Everyone here could understand the attack and do it themselves. And also under can understand like the defense that needs to be in place to prevent this sort of thing from happening. So the attack credential stuffing means that they had a huge database of known usernames and passwords not even necessarily from the vendor it's not like right. not like they had a data breach it could have just been from anywhere right exactly from somewhere yeah. some other data breach yeah exactly and they're banking on that a username and password has been reused at a different site in this case 23andme and so they just write a bot to just stuff those credentials into a form and just look for what works some of them worked apparently and then the and then yes as you said they used it to scrape genetic legacies i guess And I I think in this particular case, they were actually targeting like a particular area of the world. So this was definitely intentional. (laughs) The Wired article identifies a specific racial group that may have been targeted. Yeah. Which is, you know, like you think that that's terrible. Yeah. Shouldn't that shouldn't be possible. All right. And so you're about to go into some defenses for how to prevent credential stuffing, I think. Right. 
Yeah, there's solutions on the market. I'm one of the vendors that sells the solution. The, the thing is, like, you can't really just buy your way out of this. Like, I, I tell the Supraxial customers, it's like the critical thinking is really the most important part of your security strategy because, yeah, it's like the, the design most people come up with is like defend the login page. But what if someone, you know, just compromises a few people and then those accounts are used to scrape more data because of this new feature, you know, that you can't predict that as a security vendor. It requires cooperation. You might put a lot of defense at your perimeter, but what happens if one valid account gets in and there's these forms that have zero rate limiting on the inside? Like you got to <laughs> you got to put your defense on the inside, too. Yeah, exactly. Or how do you detect that an account was even compromised? You know, like there's behavior that's obviously malicious, you know, but you, you have to assume that, yeah, like accounts can be compromised. Some common defenses I've seen, right? Lit rate, we've already talked about anti-bots, some rate limiting of some sort that's inside and outside of the authorization zones, right? But there's also a service called Have I Been Pwned? And they offer a solution where you can check uh, hashes. You're not sending the whole password over to them. You're just checking like the first, I forget how many, so eight characters or something of the hash. And that's enough info for them to know whether or not it's part of a uh, known leaked database. And so when a user is trying to change their password on your site or sign up on your site, you would just go check this, have I been pwned thing, send the hash bit over to them. And then they would tell you, hey, eh, probably don't want to use this one. This is, this, is, this is kind of a known leaked username password. That's a hard one, though. Like imagine you're a product team and you're trying to reduce friction to sign up because nobody likes signing up in the first place. And so it's like, step one, you must have at least eight characters. Step two, please include an exclamation point. Step three, oh, you're included in a breach. Try again, start over. It's like, <laughs> okay, I'm just not going to sign up. All right. Now, and th now magically I am signed up. Now, step five, now go get your hardware key, your, your one password <laughs> thing. We are going to require second factor authentication. Go get your phone. We're going to send you a text, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Mm. It's hard. I would encourage people to go back and check out that interview where we had with you previously, where we, I think we dug in a bit more on that. There's some resources in there as well. I want to make sure we have enough time to talk about the EEF security working group and some of the recent news, which was the web application security best practices. So I'd love to hear more about that. So maybe you can first just kind of recap what the security working group is, what it's all about. Yeah. So the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation, it's a great organization. It promotes, you know, the ecosystem that we're all familiar with. And then the security working group specifically is, you know, focused on Elixir, Erlang, and Beam languages. Bram is the head of the working group. He also publishes a lot on Elixir security. We meet every month and sort of discuss things. We plan projects and we, we've been doing this specific, the working group security guide for a while now. It's very exciting to have it out and for everyone to see it and to be promoting it right now on this podcast. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Yes. We've talked with Bram before too. So it's very cool. I love what you guys are doing. So let's get a little bit of background on this guide. Who was involved? I imagine it's not just Bram and you that are part of the working group. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about who it is and who this is for. So the guide was created by a number of people. It was really the effort of the whole security working group. Just individually, you know, Bram is the lead. There's Pierre, Jonathan, and Jonathan Holden are a lot of meetings. There's more people. So I, I really apologize if I'm forgetting anyone. Jose Valim did some feedback on GitHub as well, which is really exciting. 
but this was really like a group effort and then more people are going to contribute suggestions as well. So I, I really don't even want to claim credit for it. This was like a very much a community effort. I think what's valuable about that is you also have multiple perspectives being brought in. So it's not just like, this is what I was thinking about when I wrote it. It's the best aspect of committee development, right? Like normally we say committees are horrible, but like when you're having something <laughs> like this, it's like, oh no, we're bringing in lots of perspectives and that's what we value. But this is a small committee, so it's okay. <laughs> So I do want to answer the question of like, who is this for? Who should be reading this guide? Who is it targeted at? Yes. So the guide really covers vulnerabilities specific to web application development in Beam languages. There's a focus on Phoenix, of course, but you know we want, if you're using the Beam really to do your web application, this should be relevant. So, you know, problems like cross-site scripting, cross-site request forgery, that's kind of like OWASP top 10 vulnerabilities. There's also session, session management, encryption with SSL and TLS, just really any kind of security problem you'll run into when developing web applications. So the guide is obviously targeted at Elixir developers in that way. There's another guide that the working group also put out previously, which focuses on secure coding problems in Elixir. And you've covered it on this podcast too. That was things like, you know, binary to term being like a source of remote code execution. The thing is like, it's all kind of related where like the Elixir stuff is relevant if you're doing a Phoenix application. Of course, it like is part of that set. So I would say anyone who's developing Elixir Phoenix software that's exposed to the public internet, you know, personally, or really, especially in a business context where customer data is on it. This guide is a really useful resource because all of this information in one place. I remember this security best practices document. And the last time we talked, I think it was still in progress, but it still had a lot of like really good information in there, but it has since been updated. And so for those that haven't checked it out in a while, tell us what's new, what's updated. What are some new sections of the best practices guide? Yeah. So for, for context, there's the EEF security working group. That's the GitHub pages site. And then there's two different documents and they're both in draft still. Oh, okay. <laughs> there's secure coding and deployment hardening guidelines. That's more like the Elixir code focused one with the binary to term. It has some things for, you know, the Erlang standard library and things like that. Deployment hardening. The new document, which was just released, is the web application security best practices for Beam languages. That's more of like the Phoenix you know, like SQL injection or session management, information leakage and supply chain vulnerabilities. Mm. So both of them are really relevant. Like if you're doing Elixir development at your job, like just read both of these documents if you're interested. I, I wouldn't like recommend one over the other, you know? Yeah, that's good advice. Like there's there's just a ton of stuff in here. And it's like, if you're working in this language and you're being paid to do it, like you're doing yourself a disservice to not at least be aware of these things. And I guess it's important to, note as well as it's not like every single possible attack vector is in here right like credential stuffing is not necessarily like a just put this plug right here and you'll never have anyone attempt to use breached passwords and credentials in your website like you can't there's not any one size fits all to fix some of this stuff so like you said before it's like critical thinking plays a large role here in making sure that you're not introducing these attack vectors, I guess. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And when we were scoping the document too, like we, we couldn't really include credential stuffing because then we'd have to include all this other stuff and it just blows up the project, you know? So this was like very Elixir and Phoenix focused, but yeah, it's like, you should also be aware of, of these other problems that are just universal across web application development. So I'm going to call out a couple of them specifically because you never know who this is going to apply to, right? Information leakage is one of the sections that you have on on here. And I come across this all the time. And everywhere I am, everywhere I go, it's like it's all, there's always some information leakage. And it's usually within a an acceptable range, maybe, but not really favored. Like people tend to think that it's not so big of a deal because they have control across these other platforms. Anyway, here's the examples. Of course, you have the parameter filter in the Phoenix logger. I think it has a default of just password in there and that's it and current password maybe right but you might have other tokens in there that are not being filtered out so it's easy to forget filter out some more parameters that covers you in the regular controller actions here's another one you have the phoenix socket messages right anything that's going over a phoenix socket think live view think of that socket dying and that socket having some secrets in it when it dies those logs will emit those secret things and then now it's in your logs Okay, another example, Ectoskibas. A couple of years ago, I think at this point, two years ago, somebody added, can't remember who now, but somebody added redact true option onto your Ecto schema fields. And so all that's doing is it's making sure that whenever your struct ends up in a logger line, those fields are redacted and really easy things to do, right? It's just like, mm, you know, when I added this new secret to my app, I forgot to add it to the parameter filter and I forgot to redact it from logger lines and all that kind of stuff. Those are some pretty common like examples of like where information can accidentally leak. Now, again, some folks may not think that's a big deal, but if you're security minded, you don't want your logs, which are probably being tossed into like Datadog or some other third party service. Now you have to trust their security practices as well to make sure that their things don't get leaked or across the net, it doesn't get leaked and all that sort of stuff. So information leakage is a really good section there. I'm happy to see that. You also have another section here about supply chain vulnerabilities. You got TLS vulnerabilities and session management vulnerabilities. And then, of course, the like the common web application vulnerabilities. And we've already talked about that. Cross-site scripting and request forgery and SQL ingestion. The, the classical examples. You know, just in looking at this, I get this idea like this is the kind of resource that would be really handy for a company to have like lunch and learns and let's go through one of these documents or just part of this document and just as a team company's going to pay for lunch and we're just going to be able to talk this through i mean it could be a, a dedicated meeting it doesn't have to be lunch right but like the idea is this provides a framework for having discussions and then the team can have a discussion of like how does this apply to our app do we have any schemas that we should be redacting things on should we re-audit and revisit like that things have been added over time, like you're saying, David. I think that would be maybe a really good use for this document. I would make lunch a required part of that. <laughs> <laughs> the lunch and learn thing is a really great point because through Praxial, I do you know pen testing engagements where I look at the security of web applications. And then with one client, I actually got this demand, like I, I quoted it out. And then they were like, hey, we actually want to pay you a little bit more. Once you're done the test, it seems like you know about Elixir. Could you hold like a seminar 
on Elixir security and like what topics are most relevant to our developers. And that was pretty cool. So I'm very glad to be like involved in this where it's like kind of broadcast to everyone. And then also with Praxelio clients as well. I have worked at multiple companies where security is, it's a requirement, right? Like that you're in this industry, you know, if you have medical or if you have financial or these different things, security certifications and things are requirements. Yeah. So having training, you know, being able to demonstrate we are doing training with our employees, you know, and you, you have those stupid automated I hate those trainings where they're like, everyone's forced to go through it. Like, don't pick up a USB key in the parking lot and plug it into your computer. You want information that is more applicable to the developers and your application. And if you're doing Elixir, you want to be more Elixir focused. So I love resources like this. I love that the Erling Ecosystem Foundation says, we think this is valuable. We think this is worth spending effort and time on. And that you're willing to give that time. These guides are, are fantastic guides. They're good. They're wonderful resources. And you have to know what to know <laughs> to, to make that like effective. Right. But there's, there's other times where you, you don't know what you don't know. And there's could be some tools to help you with that kind of thing. You know? Uh, so tell me about Soblo. Well, you just had a, an episode with Soblo, right? With um, Holden and Griffin recently. Yeah. It's been a little while. So for the listeners that aren't familiar, Soblo is the stack analysis tool for Elixir and Phoenix for looking for security problems. Um, and I wrote this article recently called Real World Soblo. Um, Mark actually inspired it a bit. I haven't told you this yet, but on the podcast episode, I, I listened to the entire thing again, looking for this one clip at the end where you said like Soblo led to your company adopting Elixir. And I got so excited about that because I was like, <laughs> like I mean, this is like a really huge benefit of, of Soblo existing, like obviously the security benefits, but also it, you know, Griffin got Elixir in a lot of companies. And now there's probably hundreds of jobs, you know, in fintech or financial industry and healthcare because of Soblo. So it's a great tool. I really love it. And this article, it's not really about the, the code of like Soblo or anything. It's more about, Hey, you're going to use this. You know, the commands are on the readme and everything, but like, what problems are you going to run into at your job when you've been given this line item of, hey, we should be using Soblo. And it's funny, I call that like a consultant recommendation because I used to be a security consultant and we would come into the, you know, some company and be like, oh, hey, like you should use this thing. And it's like, great. Like, that's kind of like, we knew, like, we already knew that, like, obviously <laughs> it's like useless advice because like run Soblo does not mean that your code is secure now. It just means you have like a list of findings that you have to triage and think through. And that's like 95% of the project. Yeah. So my point in bringing that up is that it can help you find those potential areas that you don't realize that you don't know. You haven't been able to like match up the practice with the guide, for example. And so below as, as much as it can is a static analysis of all those things and to bring them to your attention. What you're saying too is like that it was a tool to enable companies to feel to feel the trust, to have the trust of of adopting Elixir. That's incredible. And I also really like your point, yeah, that it's like <laughs> it's just use use so below. And and the, the the expectation is you're not all good after that, right? It is just a tool. It's not a it's not a certification. <laughs> 
So for some context on like why go through all of this trouble, because it seems like there's a million developer tools in general and they're like, you should use it because your code will be better and, and you know, you can get into that philosophical debate. With Soblo, I'll give one example. It checks your Elixir code and determines if you're vulnerable to remote code execution or RCE. That vulnerability, when it exists, a bad guy can send an HTTP request to your web server and then gets production SSH access. They just have complete control over your server if you're vulnerable to this. For the business people listening, Equifax is a credit ratings agency here in the United States. They were hit with a data breach in Apache Struts, some web application they wrote with Apache Struts. That framework is to Java what you know Phoenix is to Elixir. And after this data breach happened, it was huge news. Like the ex- executives were leaving. They were fined $425 million. Millions of people's you know, personal information was impacted by this. So this vulnerability, RCE, Sobolo checks for this. It will tell you if your code is vulnerable to it. So that's, you know, why people go through all of this trouble. You know, it seems like a lot of work. It's to prevent these, you know, huge events. And it can be hard to communicate that because there's not like an incremental like, oh, we stopped like this massive $400 million attack today or anything. One nice thing with Soblo, though, is that you do you can kind of create metrics around like, okay, it reported this many vulnerabilities and, you know, management wants to see metrics. So you can say this many were false positives, this many were true positive. This is our work in fixing them. So that's where I've, I've kind of been going with Praxial.io and the application secure product. It's not like a better version of Soblo. I, I thought about this and I absolutely did not want to come out with like Soblo Pro or anything. I've contributed code and things to Soblo because it would just be pointless to have like two different products. Like you should just use Soblo. It's the best one. So with Praxial.io, I'm more going the route of metrics, reporting for teams. That's a really common business requirement. That's on the product side. And then also on the developer security training, the article talks about how you have to know all of this stuff about security to use Soblo effectively. So there's been demand for that. And then on consulting side, you could just hire Praxial IO if you're just if you just want someone to do it. Um, that's always an option <laughs> as well. <laughs> nice. My previous experience where I was saying Sobolo enabled it. Elixir is still fairly new. There wasn't a lot of security stuff available, like packages that are already available for like there are for Java or C sharp. You know, like there's there's tons. And one of the requirements in our certification that we had to have was either every commit is reviewed by a security specialist or an automated tool is used. Mm. And so like the fact that an automated tool existed made it so, yes, we can check that check. It's not even that the automated tool is going to catch everything. You know, I could configure it so it's a horrible, just it does nothing. But it, the fact that it existed, let me check that check, right? But beyond that, Sobolo is actually valuable. One of the things I think is really helpful with anything that's built into your CI pipeline is you can have that junior developer who pushes code and they get feedback from it. And then if they have some some help documentation that says this is how you can get an explanation of what it is Sobolo is talking about, then they can maybe even fix it themselves. They can learn on their own and they don't have to like feel embarrassed that they did something that was, you know, not safe. But then if they aren't sure how to fix it, like, hey, I've got a problem, they could talk to a coworker 
and get it worked out. But what is so beneficial is that that is filtering code changes that would otherwise potentially be a risk. And also, it's a great point where you can just kind of stop progress and have a conversation about why this is important and what this means for Elixir and our application. And so I think having Sobolo as part of a pipeline, one, it's absolutely necessary if you have certification requirements. Two, even if you don't have any requirements, it's a great thing to have just because it's doing those checks and helping you prevent those things that might otherwise be a problem. And just, you know, hey, you're getting some education in the process. Yeah, sometimes security gets a very bad reputation in organizations. And sometimes it's it's deserved where security is just saying no for nonsense reasons. Um, the thing I like about Soblo, it is it is actually useful. Like it will actually catch very, very bad things. And I, I tell everyone, like, you should be using it 100%. So wrapping up some of our Sobolo discussion, I did want to call out, Michael, that I saw you had a recent blog post, Real World Sobolo, and you wrote an article about that. I want to point people to that. We'll have a link to that in the show notes so people can also make sure to get that. And then some other resources I just want to call out. Like we've talked about this before, so I just want to like put it on people's radar. When we're talking about, hey, having lunch and learns or using this guide to help train our and have discussion around our security and our code with our team, you have other resources. And like one is just a fun one. It's an Elixir application, a Phoenix app called Potion Shop that is intentionally vulnerable. (laughs) It is like doing all the wrong things. So people can practice doing exploits on it and get real world experience of how do I do a cross site scripting thing when it's not set up correctly. Yeah. And maybe your application has no vulnerability. So you could practice fixing the vulnerability. So yeah, Potion Shop, you've covered on this show too. That's Jonathan and I created it really for that purpose that you stated. I've gotten feedback from people that use Soblo that said when they wanted to learn how to use it and see what a true positive looks like, they installed it on Potion Shop sort of independently. So that, that was really nice. I use Potion Shop for the developer security trainings. That's either at like the big conferences. I'm probably giving one at CodeBeam. That's going to be the next one. I gave it at ElixirConf. It's usually remote. So if you're not part of a company where you wouldn't really purchase a training from Praxial, that's the best place to go. But, you know, Potion Shop is open source. You can use it anytime. And I'm just very happy to have it out there for the community. Nice. Well, we are about out of time, but I want to make sure we just touch on like what's next. What's next for you for Paraxial or the EEF or whatever, anything you can share? I think right now is a very good time for the people listening because Elixir is definitely growing. You know, you see it adopted more at companies, major organizations, startups. My goal personally is, is a smaller part of that, but I'm, I'm hoping to contribute here where when businesses are adopting Elixir, if security is a requirement, I just don't want that to be a blocker. I want people to say, yes, there's this company or this person or these resources we can point to and give the business leaders or the leadership the confidence to be adopting Elixir. So, you know, thank you for listening and having me on today. If you're using Elixir and have anything related to security that you would just like to discuss, please feel free to reach out to me through the Praxial IO website. You know, my information will, will be in the show notes. Well, thanks, Michael, for coming and visiting with us. It's great to check in with you, just see how things are going and getting your perspective on, you know, some current events, things that we see in the news and how that applies to us as Elixir developers. But also just want to give a shout out to you, but also to the other members of the security working group and all the awesome work they did in creating this guide. Thank you, guys. Thank you, everyone. 
I think it's a great resource. And hopefully those of us enjoying using Elixir at work are able to use a resource like this to improve and use this education. I think that's a win for everyone. But unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.